You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Amen. You might be think we're trying to teach you how to dance. That first song's long introduction. Um, if that's what uh, it sounded like or felt like, um, yeah, maybe that's okay. <laughs> We're, we're delighted to be together this morning. I hope the rain holds off so that we can go out to pray. Uh, I hope you're not intimidated by this idea of going out for a prayer walk. As I was thinking about it this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, the best way to think about it is like the two disciples found in Luke, where they are walking after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking along, a pair of them, hand side by side, they're just walking along talking, and Jesus comes and joins them. That's exactly what we're doing today. We're going to ask you to go to one of those places that's on that yellow piece of paper, that map. Uh, go to the place that uh, either fits with your last name or wherever you want to go with other friends. Some of you are going to stay here in this sanctuary. That's fine. You don't have to walk here if you want to sit. It's fine. And uh, we're going to be walking in pairs and praying about those um, items on the back of that, uh, back of this piece of paper. And it's for our community mostly. It's also for us because we need to be fit to be lighthouse for this community. And so I, I hope that you can stay and I hope that rain holds off that we can do that. We're going to be cutting the, the service just a little shorter today just so that we can do that. So uh, I hope that works out. Robert Frost wrote a poem in about 1920 called The Road Not Taken. Listen to it. <clears throat> Two roads diverged in the yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and being one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted aware, though as far as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first, I took the first one another day, yet knowing the way leads unto way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference, he ends. And that has made all the difference. Undoubtedly, some of you are thinking of Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, whose theology I'm not espousing this morning at all. For long before Robert Frost and long before Scott Peck, Jesus talked about two roads. Jesus speaks more than once about two roads, a broad road that a lot of people are taking that leads to destruction, and a narrow road that very few are taking that leads to eternal life. And Paul also talks about these themes in several places in his letters. And today as we look at the scripture, we're going to be looking at one of those times when Paul talks about a warning to avoid the broad road that leads to destruction that seems very appealing and to take the narrow road. Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> I 
and we're going to be reading verses 17 to 24. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. Would you stand with me? And let's listen to God's word. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way, for surely you heard of of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. We transitioned a few weeks ago when we passed over from chapter 3 into chapter 4 of Ephesians. We transitioned from the, the very strong teaching component of Paul's letter to the very strong application component of Paul's letter. And we started in chapter 4 verse 1 when Paul makes the transition. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling by which you've been called. And uh, that really is the, 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 the big flagship verse of the second half. It's the rest of the book of Ephesians, the rest of the letter is all about that verse. It's how do you live a life that is worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ upon your life? How do you do that? And so last two weeks, Paul, or, uh, Kevin and Doug have both been sharing from Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, really the theme is all about learning how to live a life worthy of the calling. The interesting thing is that the word live in verse 1 of chapter 4 and several other places in Ephesians where it's translated as live is actually the word walk. I thought it was appropriate that today we would mention the word walk because it's in our text as well. We're going to be going on a prayer walk, hopefully. And, And the word walk was a metaphor in New Testament language used by Paul and several others to to talk about how you live your life, how you walk it out, how you walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And so in various places, this this idea of walking it out is used by Paul. Chapter 2, verse 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in in which you used to walk. Might, Might say live in your text, but these are all walk, the same word, peripateo. Chapter 2, verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance, that we might walk in them. You've got to walk to walk. God's prepared it for you. Ephesians 4, 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Chapter 4, verse 17, our text today, Paul says, I insist on it in the Lord. The word is actually like an idea of I beg you in the Lord. I beg you in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. 
Ephesians 5.2, walk in love just as Christ loved us. Ephesians 5.8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.15, be very careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Several times in Ephesians, Paul uses this word, often in the NIV translated as live, but it means walk. It's the word walk. Walk it out. You see, all the doctrine has been front-loaded. Who are you in Christ? What has God given you in His Son? Well, that's true, truth now. Now that you have that, walk it out, live it out. Take it a step at a time and grow in your Christian life and in your maturity. And so today, as we begin to look at this text, I'd like to start with verse 17, with this, which, uh, which is a divine imperative, as you notice in your Blue insert, a divine imperative to walk the walk. And I want you to note that, that um, again, as I mentioned before, first three chapters of Ephesians, one imperative, one command. Second three chapters of Ephesians, dozens of commands. And here's one of them. He's saying, walk it out, live it out. And, and uh, it's, it's required of us. Paul's begging us to not live as the Gentiles do. And in this cat, uh, context, he's using the word Gentiles at that time to refer to all of those who are not part of the church, all of those who are not Christian, synonymous with that. And he says, I insist on it that you must no longer walk as they walk. The fact that Paul calls believers to a higher road, a higher ethical, moral, holy walking indicates that just calling yourself a Christian does not mean that you will automatically fall into grace. You don't fall into maturity. Things don't usually fall up. They fall down. If you're not paying attention to your Christian life, your walk, your maturity, you're not going to grow. You're not going to fall up. You're going to fall down. That's the way it works. We began, we began this series looking at... Uh, various scriptures, and, and last week when Doug was preaching on verses 14 to 16, he commented that if we stay on milk and we don't move on in our maturity, if we stay on milk, then we are definitely going to make some wrong choices. That moving on from infancy toward maturity in Christ-likeness requires intentionality, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, walking in the light and in the new way of the Spirit. And so, maybe... Uh, Doug, could you put the, the slide up of uh, Paul's theology of sanctification, conversion? We, we, we referred this back in January when we were starting to look at Paul. I, I brought this out and, and referred to this as uh, a general way of understanding how Paul thinks and how Paul writes. And you'll notice that as, we, as, the, as the progression of this goes, all of us created in the image of God, all of us affected by sin and the fall, which we're going to look at today, the spiritual death that we experienced in Adam required a Savior, Jesus Christ, but we're born into this world in, in physical terms, dead in sin, Ephesians 2, 2 verse 1. And in our physical birth, we, we grow, but we are automatically sinners. We're, we start out with selfish intent and desire, and really we're not able not to sin, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But then if we, if we come to know Jesus Christ, the Bible calls that a spiritual rebirth. Where we come to know God, we are made right with God. We are made from enemies of God. We're made children of God. 
and then begins this process of sanctification. And in this stage, this green stage in the graph that's on the screen, we're able to sin, but we're able not to sin. You see, the fact that Paul has to talk in the second half of Ephesians about saying, walk it out, means that we're able not to walk it out. We're able to ignore the commands of God. We're able to snuff out the Holy Spirit's voice in our lives. We're able to listen to the world around us. We're able to follow the promptings of our sinful desires in our flesh. And so Paul is saying, you know, walk it out. Because why? Because you're able to sin in this time as a Christian, but you're also able not to sin. Thanks, Doug. You can take it off uh, the screen now. And, uh, and so as we continue on, I want you to know there is this already but not yet stage of being a Christian. You already have been given all the promises in Christ, but you're not yet fully experiencing all of them because you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. You need to drink milk and move on to solid food. You need to grow in your, in your grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and all that requires effort. You need fellowship. You need the Word of God each day as part of your diet. You need prayer in your life. You need to do the things that God has called us to do. It's all in Scripture. And so as we grow, we can learn to experience everything that we've already been given. Given new, new life in Christ, but we don't always experience the new life. Uh, given uh, this wonderful promises of heaven, but we don't feel like we've got much to look forward to. Given this blessing with every spiritual blessing, yet we're so tied to earth that we get preoccupied with things around us. And so I need to walk it out. And uh, secondly, the, one, the thing I want to say about this text is that there is a danger in this passage of the road most traveled as we begin our sermon with. And the description found in verses 17 to 19, I don't know how you read it, but I, I find it absolutely dark. It's one of the darkest passages in all the Bible to me. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 is a dark passage. You can almost imagine it as a nine-step spiral staircase down into the dregs of degradation and depravity of sin. There are nine key words in those three verses. They're, they're just like a, a spiral staircase taking us down into the worst that humanity could ever live, the worst that we have to offer. And if you're like me, when you read this description, you have a hard time believing that every unsaved person that does not know Jesus is like this. I mean, really, I, I, let's be honest. Just take a look at this, and you say to me, all the people that you know that do not know Christ are like this. There's lots that stands up and bristles on the back of your, your neck when you read that. Because it's not in your experience. You don't experience every unconverted person like this. I want to talk about that today. Because it's dreadfully important that you do not walk away from God's word, which is truth. And when it doesn't line up with your experience, you just say, well, oh well, it doesn't matter. Something's not right. No, that's not good enough. You've got to build your life on this thing. And so you've got, to, you've got to figure out what is the dilemma here. Let's take a look at the words first, and then let's talk about why it is that sometimes our experience of the unsaved doesn't look like this. First of all, in the, in the, in the description found in verse 17, the word is the futility of their thinking. 
futility of their thinking. The word is vanity. The vanity of their minds. In other words, a lot of unsaved people are absolutely occupied with things that do not matter eternally. This is the vanity. They're futile. It's not going to make a difference in eternity. That's number one. Number two, darkened in their understanding. In other words, the light of God and what He's done in Christ is not on their minds and in their understanding. Thirdly, they're separated from the life of God. Can you imagine that? Having known Jesus, can you imagine being separated from the life of God? But the word is not just separated. It has the idea of being alienated and needing to be reconciled back to God. Ignorance is the next word. The ignorance that is in them. Fifthly, due to the hardening of their hearts. And here's a good word. The word is porosis, which is the, the actual uh, um, a type of stone that is harder than marble. Okay? A type of stone that's harder than marble. It's the hardening of their hearts, it says. Having lost all sensitivity. See, this, this hardening causes the loss of sensitivity. If I don't have a heart of flesh that feels when you cry, then I've got a hard heart. And if you let that heart harden more and more, I lose all sensitivity. And the word loss, loss of all sensitivity is literally a phrase that says to go beyond feeling. To go beyond feeling. If, 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 if we could imagine it like this, that some part of my body has skin that has become so calloused and so insensitive that you could actually put a pin through it and you won't even feel it. That's the idea, is, is going beyond feeling. Hearts can become hard and go beyond feeling. You don't feel conviction, you don't feel God, you don't feel others' pain, and you can do whatever you want in this world because who gives a damn? That's what it's like. That's hard. This is a dark passage. The next step downward in this spiral staircase goes to having been hardened. What do you do? You give yourself over. It says to sensuality, that word is the idea of a, of a filthiness of absolutely casting yourself onto all the desires you want to, pursuing them. And then it goes on to saying, no, giving themselves over to sensuality to indulge in every kind of impurity, uncleanness, and then what, to what degree? Well, with a continual lust for more. The idea there is covetousness, greediness. In other words, you never have enough. You never, ever have enough. It is an all-consuming desire. We live in a consumeristic age, and we think we're the ones that are consuming, but we're actually the ones that are being consumed. You give yourself over, and you are being consumed by these things. This is the... This is the degradation of this passage. This is a spiral staircase all the way down. Now, as you read this description of those without Christ, it's hard to fit it in with your understanding of people in your life. That Aunt Susie that is always so caring for you does not look like this, even though she does not profess faith in Christ. That neighbor who is always so loving and always the first to, to take the initiative in something that needs to be done on the street. Doesn't look like this. 
That humanitarian organization that you know that makes the church's good deeds look shameful doesn't look like this text. How do we reconcile what Paul is saying about a biblical anthropology with what we see in our experience? That's the dilemma. And I'd like to think of it this way. I'd like to think of it the fact that God in His mercy has given all of humanity a certain amount of restraints and constraints that govern how we live as society on this earth. We read about them in Scripture. And since temptations to sin come both from within and from without, so therefore also there must be restraints from sin both within humanity and on the outside. Something like a wall that keeps me from sinning, a wall inside and a wall outside that keeps us from falling headlong into sin or choosing it. What are those things? You could call some of them common graces. You could call others with more psychological and social terms. But nonetheless, what they are is, I suggest, very sometimes paper-thin walls of the difference between that which keeps me from sinning and keeps me holy and not sinning. Now, I know as I say this, I hope that you're thinking on this, that the highest motivation that will keep me from sinning, the Bible says, is that idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said everything that is in this book summed up in those two things. Now, that should be it. But the fact is that, as Christians even, we, we rely on these other things, these other paper-thin walls within and without to keep us from sinning. I would like to say that the, the passion for sin that I fall into sometimes is overcome by a higher passion, which is loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. But I can't say that I can depend always, as a human, on that higher passion, so I depend on lower and base walls that keep me from sin. That's the way I'm thinking of this. So what are some of those things? Well, Romans 1 and 2 refers to conscience. The, Paul calls the conscience of every human being, regardless of ethnic group, faith, creed, background, etc., every human is born with a conscience. And the Bible says that the conscience is God's law written on our hearts. You see, so every human has this internal wall of what is right and wrong that keeps us from falling into sin or following through with sin. And then there is a, a kind of another law in, in society. This, there's this moral oughtness, I'll call it. Apart from the laws of the land, there is this moral oughtness, this moral compass that is found in every society. It's the norm of what is right and wrong. It may not be based on Scripture for some, for some peoples, and for some peoples, and it, it is based on Scripture, like in our land. But the point is that there's a moral oughtness, there's a norm in here about which we've come to of right and wrong that we've just arrived. It's a wall externally that keeps me from crossing over. Then there are, of course, the laws of the land. If I speed, if I steal, if I lie, if I break some other law, I will be punished. It's sad to see in society just how much of a big deterrent law alone is. 
You saw in Vancouver or other places where, where there's chaos breaking loose and it seems like everybody's just letting it go and the law is not looking. Ah, but there's video surveillance, isn't there? And so the law is coming back to bite you. It's amazing how many people will cast off restraint of law just because they, wanna, they want what they want when they want it. Then there is pride. Pride is, is not wanting anyone to think less of me, but it's also trying to be better than the next person. That's a huge deterrent. I will not do certain things because I don't want you to think less of me. I'm not doing them because I love the Lord my God so much, but I'm doing them because I don't want you to think less of me. In fact, I want you to think more of me. You do the same. And then there is shame and guilt that are also incredibly important moral laws in every, every person, saved and unsaved. The fear of being found out or caught. At a staff meeting this past, uh, I think it was Thursday, we were talking about this text and one of the staff members said, what would you be capable of doing if you knew that no one would ever find out and there would be no consequences for it, not even from God? My initial gut reaction was that I don't want that kind of freedom. I don't want that kind of freedom. And then there's, of course, that leads to another one of its consequences. If I don't show up at work, if I treat people with disrespect, I could lose my job. If I spend more than I make, if I don't behave properly to my child or my parents or my husband or my wife, there are consequences, and we like avoiding bad consequences, so we're going to watch out. You see, these are all, and I'm sure there are many others, these are all laws or moral, moral walls, restraints and constraints that are built into us, in our hearts and into our families and societies that keep us from following wrong paths, walking in ways that are sinful. But we must not be deceived into thinking that because we do not see every unbeliever living like this, that it means that somehow they are partially redeemed or more redeemed than the worst of sinners. That's the danger. All of us need the righteousness that comes only by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if these paper-thin walls of restraint that come from the common grace of God upon us were to be removed from an unbeliever, they would be cast off somehow. They would plunge into this very description of sin. This is the description of what you and I would be like without the prevenient and preserving and sustaining grace of God and the presence of Jesus in our lives. This is it, friends. Now, now either you agree with that or you don't. But as the quote that's in your sermon notes says from R. Kent Hughes, a loss of the biblical vision of the world is behind the erosion of Orthodox Christianity in many places because if you imagine the world is better than it is, the necessity of Christ and his cross is lessened, and the potential of re unregenerate man is elevated. See, that, that, that's, that's a loss of the gospel. That's a loss of the purpose for which Christ came. And we cannot go there. The third point is walking as Jesus walked. And this is in verses 20 to 22. And... Uh, Many of you will have to think back to when you came to Christ, <clears throat> how it was then in your life. What should have happened when every one of us came to Christ was that 
as a baby Christian, you should have had spiritual parents. Someone should have taken you by the hand and helped you take those first baby steps. Sometimes it happened in your home with your parents. Sometimes it happened with a, another person that became like a spiritual parent. But somehow that was supposed to happen. But, but for many people, it didn't happen. And the church is supposed to be all about doing that for each other. That's why two weeks ago, Kevin was preaching on Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, where we read how Jesus gave the church gifts for the equipping of God's people so that the body of Christ could be built up so that we could all reach maturity in the fullness of Christ. Church is not just to be about Sunday. It's supposed to be about a family of believers united and intimately connected, growing to be more and more like Jesus. But that growth in faith and in maturity in each of our lives is a messy process. You see, because if we're going to grow, there has to be a breaking down of what exists from the old flesh and a building up of the Spirit of God in our lives unto Christ-likeness. And that's a messy thing. And so if we're going to do that together, then I'm going to see your messiness and you're going to see my messiness. And we have to learn how to pray, forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who trash in our baskets. You see... That's the way it works, because there's messiness in sanctification. And so as we grow, we have to learn how to, to walk it out in our weakness, in our vulnerability. That's what fellowship is all about. I was talking about this past week as well with my prayer group on Thursday morning. Pastor Alf said that if one of the problems that we face in the church in North America is that we're, we're wealthy enough to hide some of our sins. We're wealthy enough to hide our weaknesses we go into our homes, we close our doors, and, and we, we deal with our stuff alone. That's not fellowship. He talked about how when he was a chaplain in prison, he could go to the file of every inmate and find every misdemeanor on record. And then when he became a pastor, he found that the church doesn't have such a file about every member. <laughs> kind of good thing, eh? But how do we grow in this? Kevin, are we going for a walk? Okay, I need to conclude then. Let me conclude with this. In this scripture that we're looking at, the uh, passage is talking about the fact that we are to put off and put on. And we're going to talk about this more because in verse 25 he goes on to talk about that. But let me just share one story as I conclude. On July the 30th, 1945, the USS Indianapolis had finished its uh, delivering of its cargo and was returning uh, on the Pacific from, from there. And, and a Japanese torpedo ended its journey. 1,200 men on board. 300 died instantly because of the torpedo. The ship sank. More than 900 men were left in the ocean in the Pacific with very few life rafts, supplies, no fresh water, no shelter from the sun, no protection from sharks. They drifted for four days like that and five nights. The chief medical officer, Captain Lewis Haynes, was one of the survivors, and he described what happened in those four days. He writes about how tempting the crystal clear ocean water was to the men. Many of them could not believe that it was not good to drink. He even physically fought with some of the men to keep them from drinking the ocean water because they were so thirsty and so hungry and tired, and the sun was scorching down. Several of the men drank the ocean water, and they were the first to die. But they didn't die easily. 
Their dying was hard on everybody. Within hours, they dehydrated and they became like maniacs. They hallucinated. They even had mass hallucinations convincing each other that they were seeing something that was genuine. It wasn't. And when they were finally rescued four days later, only 317 of the 900 men survived. And the point I'm making is that there are so many fatal consequences to not heeding the warnings against sin in the Scriptures. There are fatal consequences to not heeding warnings. This is true in so many areas of life. Many times the writers of Scripture warn us that sin looks enticing, that it promises to satisfy you, that it promises to give you what you need, that everybody around you is indulging in it, and you should too. It is a deception that will bring grave consequences. And what often looks innocent and pure and clean is really often a deadly poison that will cloud your mind, deaden your senses, blur your vision, and cause you to hallucinate along with the rest of the world that is thinking that everything that has to do with anything is in this life. And friends, this scripture and others that we're going to look at in the coming days are all about warning us to not follow the ways of this world. Do not walk as the Gentiles walk but rather put off the old and put on the new, for that's who you are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, would you take that little yellow insert or piece of paper that you were given? And um, on one side, it's the map. You'll see some dots on the map. And those dots are the destinations that we're going to go to, to walk from. And uh, so as soon as I pray and dismiss us, if you're not interested in walking at all, but you want to pray, please just stay right here. And uh, John Gertzen, is it? No, nope. somebody else will be praying here with, with the group. And uh, if, you're, if you'd like to follow our plan, you'll notice that groups one is... Uh, is meeting in the, the, the parking lot right outside here and then starting to walk from here. And, and again, we're not deciding where you walk. Just go in twos and just start walking around a few blocks in this area and praying together about these, these prayer needs on the back. The group two is going to be going to the White Ridge Elementary School. And who's leading that group? Doug is leading that group. The first group is Kevin. Kevin's meeting out here. Doug's at the elementary school. I'll be going to the, the Henry G. Isaac Middle School, just a little further down Skirfield. We'll meet there, and then we'll go out in twos around that neighborhood, be praying in twos about these requests. The fourth group is the White Ridge Community Club. Who's leading that group? Dan Penner, okay. And uh, he's going to be meeting there, and then in twos we'll be just praying around that neighborhood. And then finally, the, there's a group going to the McGillivray property where we have land, and Jeff Workentine. Raise your hand, that's good. Jeff's going to be leading that group. And uh, again, just walking around that neighborhood and praying for these, these items, okay? So I encourage you, I hope you can be involved. Uh, if you take, if you go to those areas and pray, walk and pray for 15 minutes, great. If you pray for half an hour, great. And then just go from there onto your homes and uh, come back next week with ready to, to participate in the Love Winnipeg programs that we are, are running. Please, before you leave, sign up if you can. Put your name down on a team that we can work together next week on. Would you stand with me? And let's uh, pray and then we'll dismiss. 
Gracious God, we thank you for your scripture and and the warnings that we receive there. Help us, O Lord, to understand what your word is teaching us. Help us, Lord, to depend on all the incredible restraints and constraints that we have to, to, to not sin. And help us to follow you in righteousness and holiness, to depend on you, O God. And the most and the highest would be to love you with all of our being. And so, Father, as we go out from this place now, we know that in this, in this neighborhood there are many that do not know you. And our, our ultimate desire would be for them to come to you. We pray for families. And as we go out and we pray for institutions and families and, and various people that are on our, on our society to help, we pray that you'd hear us and answer from heaven and make this a just and righteous society, O oh God, and make us like light and salt in this world. So bless your people now as they go out. And may the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People of God, go in peace.